why all these constant questions about the younger generation, about their thoughts, their hopes, and their strengths? In 1933, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer delivered a radio address to the people of Germany. The 27-year-old theologian star was on the rise. He had studied at the two foremost theological seminaries in the world. He had already written and published three widely read books. When he spoke, people listened. This radio address had a provocative title. The Younger Generation's Altered View of the Concept of Führer. In it, Bonhoeffer was trying to figure out why young Germans seemed so obsessed with a politician named Adolf Hitler. Hitler had been named Chancellor of Germany just three days earlier. He didn't mention Hitler by name, but instead referred to the vague notion of the title Hitler wanted, Der Führer. To what extent is leading and being led healthy and genuine? When does it become pathological and excessive? Only those who give careful consideration to the question can understand something of the nature of the ideology of the Führer, can understand the behavior of the uh, younger generation. The health and rectitude of young people are at risk. Ideal and illusion are close neighbors. Among today's youth. Bonhoeffer's address was cut short, mid sentence. There's no way of knowing whether that was on purpose or by accident. He never finished the speech. In the decade that followed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would resist the rule of Hitler and his Nazi regime, first with words and lastly with weapons. Bonhoeffer's resistance to the Nazis was lonely, difficult, and ultimately insufficient. He was arrested and executed by hanging at the Flossenburg concentration camp for his involvement in a failed attempt to kill Hitler and an operation to save Jews from Germany. Shortly before his death, he wrote a haunting essay on the failure of him and his movement to meaningfully stop Nazism. We have been silent witnesses of evil deeds. We have been drenched by many storms. Are we still of any use? This is From Sin to Saint, a podcast from Pathios. In each season, we will look at the true stories of redemption of saintly figures from all faiths. This season, we are looking at the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor known for writing theological classics and for his resistance to Nazi rule. I'm Josh Lash, a journalist and historian. In the first two episodes, we looked at the transformation of Bonhoeffer from an immature young man with ties to German nationalism to a mature theologian with an anti-racist, anti-fascist ideology. We examined his theological framework from his Lutheran foundations to his sweeping vision of a church community. And we saw his political awakening to the suffering of the oppressed at a historic black church in Harlem. In this episode, we will look at how all of those experiences shaped his resistance to Nazism in Germany between 1931 and 1945. 
When we last left off, it was the summer of 1931. Bonhoeffer had just returned to Germany after a transformative year in the United States. He comes back from New York, and it is immediately apparent something is different. Reggie Williams was one of the scholars who helped narrate that chapter of Bonhoeffer's life. He wrote a book on it. His professional career immediately upon returning from New York is significantly at variance with his colleagues in the academy and in the church. Bonhoeffer had been raised in a religious environment where Lutheranism and German identity went hand in hand. This nationalist strain only grew with time. But Bonhoeffer's experiences in New York, including his friendship with the French theologian Jean Lasserre, had turned him toward the ecumenical movement. Ecumenism is the idea that Christian denominations around the world ought to be united by faith, not divided by national borders. The summer of his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer went to an ecumenical conference in Cambridge, England, and professed his allegiance to the movement. My sojourn in America has made one thing clear to me. The absolute necessity of cooperation between the national churches. This enraged some theologians back home, who saw the move as Bonhoeffer colluding with the same nation that had defeated and humiliated Germany in the First World War. Bonhoeffer's time in America, and specifically at Abyssinian Baptist Church, had also injected a political edge to his theology that was almost alien to German Lutheranism. That's why it was significant when Bonhoeffer and his friend Franz Hildebrandt wrote a Lutheran catechism decrying ethnic pride. Hildebrandt was a Christian of Jewish descent. In this catechism, which was intended to teach young Lutherans, Bonhoeffer and Hildebrandt wrote that God has arranged it so that all races of humanity of the earth come from one blood. Therefore, a a defiant ethnic pride in flesh and blood is a sin against the Holy Spirit. As much as the Christian would like to remain distant from political struggle, nonetheless, even here, the commandment of love urges the Christian to stand up for his neighbor. It was also during this period that Bonhoeffer first met Karl Barth in the flesh. Barth was the Swiss theologian that had inspired Bonhoeffer's first dissertation. He was best known for his rejection of liberal theology and his embrace of the fundamentals of Christian belief. He urged a more dogmatic, metaphysical Christianity. I have, I believe, seldom regretted not having done something in my theological past as much as I now regret that I did not go to hear Barth sooner. Barth was likely at the forefront of Bonhoeffer's mind when he railed against his professors at Union Theological Seminary for disregarding metaphysical questions. But when he finally met Barth, he discovered that his own theology had become quite distant, especially with regard to the doctrine of justification. He thought I was making grace into a principle and was bludgeoning everyone else to death with it. Naturally, I disagree with him on the first point and would like to know why all the rest should not be bludgeoned to death. Though the two disagreed fiercely the first time they met, they would become close friends in the years to come, united in their opposition to the Nazis. Upon his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer worked as a chaplain at the Berlin Technical University, and he found that the engineers there had no interest in his sermons. 
He returned to Berlin University as an adjunct, but discovered that he had little interest in academia. He wanted to live as a Christian, not just think about God in a classroom. During this time, Bonhoeffer collected a series of lectures into his third book, an examination of the story of Genesis called Creation and Fall. In this work, he examines the nature of sin and free will and interrogates the idea that we are made in God's image. While he was working on Creation and Fall, Bonhoeffer set out to do real pastoral work in a church again. In February of 1932, he settled on the perfect job as a youth pastor at a church in a working-class neighborhood in Berlin. Here's Reggie Williams again. Then he also turns towards taking over a catechism class from an older gentleman in a poor part of Berlin called Wedding. This job checked all of his boxes. It was real church work. It was youth ministry, which he had done in Barcelona, Harlem, and once before in Berlin. And it gave him the opportunity to build on the lessons of the social gospel that he had learned from Adam Clayton Powell Sr. at Abyssinian Baptist. But Bonhoeffer may have bitten off more than he could chew with this group of kids. They were so unruly that the previous minister had quit for the sake of his health and died of a heart attack just a little while later. He's assigned to these boys, and when this older gentleman introduces Bonhoeffer to them, they're making all this ruckus. It's a funny story. They're making quite a din. He's walking up the stairs, and the older pastor says, boys, boys, calm down. I have a new teacher for you, Professor Bonhoeffer. And they start banging, bon, 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 bon. And then he just literally fades away into another room, and Bonhoeffer, in this move that, that betrays his ability with kids, just leans on the wall and doesn't react to the noise and then leans over and starts speaking quietly to, to a boy that's in front of him. And then they all then quiet down to hear what he was saying. And as Bonhoeffer tells it, I told them stories about Harlem. Bonhoeffer told these boys about his time in Harlem, where he had led a youth ministry with boys around the same age. Maybe he was connecting the experience of these boys with those boys. Who knows? But it quieted them, and they were wrapped. They gave him their attention because they liked the stories. And he said, if you're behaving well, when I come back, I'll tell you more stories about Harlem. Bonhoeffer used these stories to capture these children's attention. He even played African-American spirituals for them from a book that his friend Al Fisher had given them. Like in Harlem, the community in Vetting had been hit especially hard by the Great Depression that was sweeping the globe. It had once been a factory town, but those factories had now shut down, and people struggled to find work. This is the toughest neighborhood in Berlin, with the most difficult socioeconomic and political conditions. Most of the home conditions are indescribable. Poverty, disorder, immorality. Yet the children are still open. In vetting, Bonhoeffer saw firsthand how terrible the economic situation in Germany had become. The unprecedented situation of our public life here in Germany really looks unbelievably serious. The coming winter in Germany will probably leave no one in Germany unaffected. Seven million unemployed, that means 15 to 20 million people hungry. I don't know how Germany and how each individual can live through that. Intelligent people in the field of economics have told me 
that things look as if we are being pushed at an enormous speed toward a destination that no one knows or could prevent. One lives from one day to the next. No one can see further ahead. Amid that desperation, Bonhoeffer felt that the role of the church to be a moral light and to help the helpless was more important than ever. He was invigorated by the opportunity to bring the lessons he had learned in New York to help the people of Germany. He wanted to make the church a place for the Christians of Germany to turn to in their darkest hour. But Germans were looking elsewhere for answers to their problems. In 1931, while Bonhoeffer was still in America, the Nazi party had won an extraordinary victory in the German parliament. They increased their seats from 14 one term to 107 the next. Popular support for Adolf Hitler was growing rapidly, buoyed by his promises to restore greatness to Germany and punish those who he claimed were responsible for the current situation. Just two years after that, on January 31st, 1933, he would be named as the German Chancellor. Bonhoeffer was seriously worried about the rise of fascism and anti-Semitism in Germany. He recognized that the economic situation created easy fodder for demagogues like Hitler. He just didn't quite know what to do about it. It really will probably not be long until the National Socialists go on the offensive. If it happens by means of violence, it's all over for us. Will our church survive another catastrophe? In times like these, what good is a person's theology? Bonhoeffer saw Hitler's growing support at his parish in Wedding and at the University of Berlin, where a growing number of prominent faith leaders had joined the Deutsche Christian, or German Christian, movement. These were Christians that aligned themselves with Hitler and his Aryan mythology. They preached a Volkish theology of ethnic pride that named Aryan Germans alone as the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Protestants in Germany ever since Martin Luther in the 16th century were conservative nationalists. Matthew Hockenoss is a professor of 20th century European history at Skidmore College. He's written extensively about the church's role in Nazi Germany. So it made perfect sense that conservative nationalists would find some overlap with Nazism and vice versa. The Lutheran tradition that Bonhoeffer was raised in connected German Protestantism with German identity. It wasn't a difficult leap from that to the ultra-nationalism preached by Hitler. Hitler said that the churches and the Nazi party would work together to bring about the moral renewal and the rejuvenation of Germany after this period known as the Weimar Republic, which was considered, as you know, decadent and uh, immoral. The vast majority of German Christians liked what they heard from Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not. I think that Bonhoeffer, from day one, opposed everything about Nazism. Just three days after Hitler became chancellor in the winter of 33, Bonhoeffer took to the airwaves to deliver his radio address on the Fuhrer Principle. His speech was directed at German youth, who he had just spent the last year working with, first as a university chaplain, then as an adjunct, and finally as a youth minister. 
he had seen firsthand the appeal that Hitler held with these young Germans. In many ways, Bonhoeffer was the perfect person to deliver this appeal. He himself was still very young. He's 26 years old when the Nazis come to power. Victoria Barnett is one of the foremost Bonhoeffer scholars. She was an editor of the 17-volume Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works, and she was also the former director for the program on ethics, religion, and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. We first heard from Barnett in episode one, when she outlined Bonhoeffer's early attraction to German nationalism. That dark chapter in his life served him well now. He really understands the appeal of the, na- of the National Socialists for, the, for younger Germans. He gets it. I mean, he's kind of been there. He, he understands the resentment. Um, he understands the pull of the, the militarization. And so he becomes very eloquent in countering that in the 1930s. I think because you know, he, he has sort of made that journey himself. In his radio address... Bonhoeffer put himself in the shoes of a young German who might feel drawn to Hitler and the promise of fascism. He tried to understand the appeal. The masses of the post-war period and the million-strong army of unemployed during the crisis have given the younger generation a convincing impression of the meaninglessness and complete isolation of the individual and of the blunt power of the masses. A sense of the individual and a sense of true community seemed to have been completely destroyed. It was out of this crisis that an impassioned call arose for new authority, new ties for community. Bonhoeffer warned against this call for a new authority and appealed to Germans' Christian sensibilities. There is currently a terrible danger that in crying out for authority, for a leader or office, we forget that the human being is an individual before the ultimate authority. They are looking not at his reality, but at his purpose. A leader that turns himself into God mocks God. Only the leader who is in the service of the penultimate and ultimate authority merits loyalty. So he's already kind of warning people against being swept away by this rising nationalist movement. And that carries over into early 1933. He has the radio address. He publishes something about why young people are attracted to the Fuhrer, what they're looking for, why it is that you know, he, they're looking for a figure like this. Even though his radio address was cut off mid-sentence, Bonhoeffer published his full remarks in a daily newspaper the next week, hoping that they might do something to blunt the rise of fascism. His words fell on deaf ears. In what would become a pattern over the next decade, Bonhoeffer was too slow to see the writing on the wall. At the end of February 1933, arsonists set fire to the Reichstag, the German parliament. Here you see the Reichstag the German House of Parliament in Berlin, which has been seriously destroyed by fire. Hitler, now Chancellor, has announced that the fire was the work of communists and was intended to be the signal for a Bolshevist uprising throughout the country. In consequence, Germany has been placed under a system of martial law, a decree having been signed which aims at the total destruction of communism. Chancellor Hitler used that chaos to suspend democratic order and assume total control of the German government. 
the Weimar Republic was gone. Nazi Germany had arrived. Bonhoeffer despaired. He had seen the fascists as a distant threat. He had been terribly wrong. At the core of his disappointment was the fact that church leaders had been either indifferent to Hitler's rise or had actively supported it. In his year in New York, he had seen a theology where the church was politically active and motivated by social justice. That was not the norm in Germany. German Lutheran churches at this time adhered closely to Martin Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms. In its most basic form, this doctrine held that there were two kingdoms through which God interacted with people. There was the earthly kingdom, the state, which had a mandate to maintain order, and the spiritual kingdom, the church, which had a mandate to spread the message of salvation. Under the two kingdoms doctrine, what the state did was no business of the church, and vice versa. Even if church leaders didn't like the new regime, they were under a divine mandate to do nothing. But it's critically important to remember that most of them did like the new regime. Matt Hockenoss again. Hitler comes to power January 31st, 33. We have the Reichstag fire February 27th. Um, and Hitler and his minions, you know, round up the communists, the trade unionists and the socialists. Most conservative Protestants probably love this. Bonhoeffer, again, would be an exception. In April 1933, the line between the two kingdoms fell when the state began to encroach upon the church. That's when the Nazi government passed what they called the Law for the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service. It's also known as the Aryan Paragraph. It required that all civil servants of Jewish descent be removed from their posts. That included churches, which were government-funded. The number of pastors who had Jewish descent was only in the 20s. You know, I think it was 27 to be exact, pastors of Jewish descent. So if the German Christians were successful in passing these laws, then these pastors of Jewish descent or Jewish ancestry would have had to be removed from their posts. Not necessarily fired, but they would not be able to hold pastorates. This was beyond the pale for many German Christians, even those that were proud members of the Nazi party. Not only was it a violation of the Two Kingdoms doctrine, it was a strike at the very heart of Christian principles. And, and when you think about it, what in fact are they challenging? They're actually challenging the sacrament of baptism. These guys are baptized. And not only are they baptized, they went to theology school. You know, they became pastors because they believe nothing more than in Christ and God. And that this is their whole purpose in life is to spread this message to fellow Germans. Church leaders were opposed to the Arian paragraph for this reason not because it targeted Jews. But it's very important to make a distinction between the church being opposed to anti-Semitism, which is one thing that it just simply was not, and the church being opposed to having Christians of Jewish descent either removed from the pastorate or removed from the pews. The Deutsche Christians, those Christians that aligned themselves closely to Hitler and promoted a Volkish theology, did support the Aryan paragraph. 
that was sort of the, the sector of the Protestant pastorate that was very pro-Nazi, very nationalist, and really saw the rise of Hitler as a way to nationalize the church. Um, and so you've got a, an active movement in the Protestant church that takes this and runs with it, which is why the church struggle begins. I mean, this is the, this is the thing that launches that. The church struggle refers to the fight over the fate of the Christian church in Nazi Germany. There were three main camps. The Deutsche Christians, who supported state control of the church, the traditional church leaders, who by and large supported the Nazis, but wanted to keep church and state separate. And then there was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a camp of his own. He wanted nothing to do with the Nazis, and he wasn't afraid to say it. The Aryan paragraph was the first skirmish in the church struggle. The Nazi regime in April 1933 didn't have any way of enforcing this across the country, and so they left the enforcement or the implementation up to the respective institutions. The church had to decide whether to enforce the Nazi law. The Deutsche Christians were for it. Traditional church leaders were not. For now, the latter won out. Ethnically Jewish pastors remained at their post. But Bonhoeffer went even further. Not only did he oppose the Aryan paragraph with every fiber of his being, he used the law to draw a line in the sand against Nazism. In response to this law, he penned one of his most famous essays called The Church and the Jewish Question. The Church and the Jewish Question reveals a lot about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the complexities of his theology, and politics. Before we dive into this essay, however, I want to take a minute here and get a little personal. I'm Jewish. When I hear the phrase, the Jewish question, it presents this immediate anti-Semitic dog whistle to me. You see, the Jewish question refers to the long-standing idea in European Christian thought that the presence of Jews in Europe presented some sort of problem. As a religious and ethnic minority, Jews were either denied the opportunity to become citizens of Christian nations, or they had refused demands to assimilate into those nations. When the Nazis presented their final solution, it was their solution to the Jewish question. So, it's disconcerting to see Bonhoeffer use the term here. I won't make apologies for it. It's important context. Okay, back to the essay. Bonhoeffer plainly states his mission at the very top. The fact, unique in history, that the Jew is subjugated to special laws by the state solely on the basis of his race and regardless of the religion to which he adheres, presents theologians with two new problems which must be dealt with separately. How does the church judge this action taken by the state and what is the church called upon to do about it? In order to answer this question, Bonhoeffer first had to define what the role of the state was regarding Jews. His answer was concerning. Without a doubt, one of the historical problems that must be dealt with by our state is the Jewish question. And without a doubt, the state is entitled to strike new paths in doing so. Not only did Bonhoeffer believe the Jewish question had to be dealt with by the state— but he thought that the church had no right to dictate how they do that. 
the Church of the Reformation is not encouraged to get involved directly in specific political actions of the state, even if acting in the name of human rights. The true Church of Christ will never interfere with the functioning of the state in this way by criticizing its actions from the standpoint of any sort of, say, humanitarian ideal. When I first read these words, they shocked me. This was not the Bonhoeffer that emerged from Harlem, brimming with ideas of the social gospel. This was the apolitical Lutheran Bonhoeffer, adhering closely to the Two Kingdoms doctrine and seeming to turn a blind eye to Nazi atrocities. But about halfway through the piece, his logic takes a turn. The church cannot primarily take direct political action. But that does not mean that the church stands aside, indifferent to what political action is taken. Instead, it can and must keep asking the government whether its actions can be justified as legitimate state actions. That is, actions that create law and order, not lack of rights and disorder. Under the Two Kingdoms doctrine, the state has a divine mandate to create law and order. If they're not doing that, Bonhoeffer says, then the church has a right to correct their actions. This was a radical rethinking of the two kingdoms. Either too little law and order or too much law and order compels the church to speak. This would mean the state developing its use of force to such a degree as to rob the Christian faith of its right to proclaim its message. Bonhoeffer argues that the Arian paragraph is such an illegitimate state action not because it targets Jews, but because it interferes with the church's ability to spread the gospel, which is, after all, the point of the church. The ethnicity of a pastor, he argued, should have nothing to do with their ability to preach. What's more, the goal was to ultimately convert Jews, not ostracize them. Here comes the crucial moment in the text where Bonhoeffer outlines the three things that the church can do in the face of an illegitimate state. There are thus three possibilities for actions that the church can take vis-a-vis the state. First, questioning the state as to the legitimate state character of its actions, that is, making the state responsible for what it does. Second is service to the victims of the state's actions. The church has an unconditional obligation toward the victims of any societal order, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. The third possibility is not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself. To seize the wheel itself. This is probably Bonhoeffer's most famous line. It's hard to interpret it as anything other than a direct call for Christians to oppose a tyrannical state. It foreshadows Bonhoeffer's eventual participation in the conspiracy to kill Hitler. This paragraph, which wraps up the essay, along with Bonhoeffer's eventual commitment to action, 
is one of the main reasons why today he's considered such a saintly figure. But there are other moments in this essay that complicate that narrative. For instance, there's a paragraph that's chock full of anti-Semitic language. The anti-Semitic paragraph, which is an awful summary of every Christian anti-Semitic trope you've ever thought of. This included blaming the Jews for killing God and the argument that Jewish suffering was God's curse. The whole thing is deeply offensive, uh, deeply problematic in trying to figure out what Bonhoeffer is trying to do here. And it's not in any of his early drafts. This paragraph was not in any of Bonhoeffer's early draft of the essay. A lot of people think it might have been added by someone else after the fact, so as not to be too sympathetic to the Jews. There's also some debate on whether or not Bonhoeffer hardened his language on political action to appeal to his fellow German Lutherans. Regardless, Bonhoeffer signed off on this final essay. The church and the Jewish question is a crystallization of the dual nature of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. On the one hand, you have this inspiring theology of resistance. On the other, you can see that he held views that were deeply offensive. And in nowhere do you see a deep-seated concern for Jewish Germans, just a fear for the future of the church and its message. That fear was legitimate. A few months after the Church and the Jewish Question published, the German church held the leadership vote. There's an election that takes place within the churches, and they elect Frederick von Boloschwing to be the Reich bishop, the head bishop of the Protestant churches in Germany. After four weeks, uh, Boloschwing resigns because of interference by the Nazis. They hold new elections in July and the German Christians, these Nazi Christians, are elected in July of 1933, and uh, Bishop Ludwig Müller becomes the new Reich bishop. Müller was an army chaplain who had been a proud Nazi since the 1920s. He was the leader of the Deutsche Christians and a fierce anti-Semite. He had the personal endorsement of Hitler. With his election, the Nazis were in firm control of the German church. So once these German Christians get elected, I mean, it was a landslide victory by the German Christians in these various churches. They begin to consider um, implementing the Aryan paragraph. So the Aryan The German church had been Nazified. The students at Berlin University threw up straight arm salutes and screamed Heil Hitler at the beginning of class. There were Nazis marching in every corner of public life. The Deutsche Christians even took aim at the Bible. They wanted to cast out anything in there with Jewish roots, including the entirety of the Old Testament. They wanted to erase the fact of the Jewish Christ. It seemed that Bonhoeffer had nowhere to turn in this world. So he turned to God, as he had throughout his entire life. He set to work on a flurry of theological writing intended to counter the Nazi brand of Christianity work that drew on his experience in Harlem to cast Christ as the sufferer, the outcast, the Jew. Bonhoeffer's sermons from this period are full of references to the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's commandment that we love our neighbor and our enemy. He urged Germans to resist the Nazis' false, stunted worldview and religion. 
In one powerful sermon, he compared the situation in Germany to the terrified crew of a boat caught in a fearsome storm. We are all at sea on that voyage without faith, without hope, overwhelmed in chains, in bondage, paralyzed by fear. We have lost heart, lost the joy of living, our limbs heavy as lead. Each of us knows what it's like. The way to conquer that fear and weather the storm, Bonhoeffer argued, is through faith in Christ. But that seemed nowhere to be found. He ended the sermon on a somber note. And that's the worst of it. We don't even want to find a way out. That is the final triumph of fear over us, that we are afraid to run away from it and just let it enslave us. Fear has conquered us. Bonhoeffer was determined not to be conquered by fear. In the summer of 1933, he and a group of around 3,000 like-minded pastors came together to found what they called the Pastors' Emergency League. The most prominent member of the league was a pastor named Martin Niemöller. Like Bonhoeffer, Niemöller was a vocal opponent of the Aryan paragraph. Unlike Bonhoeffer, he was a supporter of the Nazis and an anti-Semite. His concerns, like most of the League, were entirely clerical. Members of the Pastors' Emergency League gathered in the city of Bethel to declare their allegiance to Scripture and their opposition to the adoption of the Arian paragraph. The decision to apply the law to the churches would be up for debate that fall. The Bethel Confession, as the document was known, would be passed around for review by the leaders of the Pastors' League over the next few months ahead of the vote. As the vote on the Aryan paragraph approached, Bonhoeffer wrote to his friend and mentor, Karl Barth, about the situation. Barth, like Bonhoeffer, had resisted the Nazis from the onset. Bonhoeffer expressed his concern to Barth that if the German church adopted the law, it would represent a total break from the gospel, essentially the death of the organized church. Barth disagreed. He more or less wrote back that the adoption of the law wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. He urged Bonhoeffer to wait and see what happened. Bonhoeffer was taken aback by the response, but not persuaded or deterred. Bonhoeffer continued his efforts to publicly undermine Mueller and the Deutsche Christens, despite repeated threats from Nazi officers to stop. When the day finally came for the vote on the Aryan paragraph, something extraordinary happened. At the direct command of Hitler, the church was forbidden from adopting the Aryan paragraph. The Nazis feared the public blowback it would cause. The decision to pull the vote seemed like an indication that the Pastors' Emergency League was winning. But the feeling of victory was short-lived. Soon after, Bonhoeffer received the revised version of the Bethel Confession and found that it had been entirely whitewashed. It was no longer a powerful rejoinder of Nazi Christianity. 
he wouldn't even put his name to it. Bonhoeffer was faced with the horrible prospect that he really was the only true voice of opposition to the Nazis in the German church. It was too much to bear. In the fall of 1933, at the very height of the influence of the Pastors Emergency League, which now boasted more than 6,000 members, Bonhoeffer did something totally uncharacteristic. He left. One month later, in October, Bonhoeffer heads to England. You know, he leaves. Um, A lot of people consider this shocking. In the fall of 1933, Bonhoeffer arrived in London to finally be a working pastor. He had left Germany in the middle of one of the most consequential moments in the church struggle, accompanied by his friend, Franz Hildebrandt. Hildebrandt was one of those Jewish pastors who would be barred by the Aryan paragraph. Bonhoeffer's apprehension and guilt about his decision were clear in a letter he wrote to Karl Barth, explaining himself. I wanted to be free, so I suppose I simply withdrew. The Bethel Confession, into which I truly had poured heart and soul, met with almost no understanding. I no longer felt inwardly equal to the questions and demands that I was facing. I found myself in radical opposition to all my friends. I I was becoming increasingly isolated with my views of the matter, even though I was and remain personally close with these people. All this frightened me and shook my confidence so. I thought it was about time to go into the wilderness for a spell and simply work as a pastor, as unobtrusive as possible. Bart's response was cutting. He told Bonhoeffer to return to Berlin immediately. He accused the pastor of abandoning his post on the dawn of battle. You are a German, Bart wrote. Your church's house is on fire. How could you not be here when there is so much at stake? You need to be here all guns blazing. A few months earlier, it was Bart who had dismissed the Nazi threat. Now, it seemed that Bonhoeffer had. Bart asked Bonhoeffer what in the world he hoped to do in London. What Bonhoeffer hoped to do was take a new tact to the church struggle. He stays in London, where he fights the church struggle from London, very much by establishing ties to the ecumenical movement. For the next 18 months, Bonhoeffer crisscrossed Europe from London to Geneva to Paris spreading the word to his ecumenical contacts about what was happening in Germany. A definite disqualification of Mueller by the ecumenical movement would perhaps be my last hope, humanely spoken, for a recovery of the German church. Please do not be silent now. He even spoke at the League of Nations, the Proto-UN. Through this work, He was instrumental in informing the rest of the world about what exactly was happening in Hitler's Germany. The Nazis hated what Bonhoeffer was up to. He was generating a lot of bad press for them at a moment when Germany was supposed to be ascendant. The 1936 Berlin Olympics were around the corner, and this upstart pastor was spoiling all the fun. They sent party officials to make him stop, and when he wouldn't, They branded him as an enemy of the state. Meanwhile, back in Germany, 
the Nazification of the church continued at a breakneck pace. The pastor's emergency league largely fizzled out as more and more dissenters gave up the fight. But folks like Bart and Niemöller, who was still a Nazi party member, kept up the church struggle. In May of 1934, these church leaders gathered in the town of Barman to figure out their next steps. And the key uh, person at Barman is, by all means, Karl Barth. At Barman, Barth wrote out something of a manifesto. He declared that the only basis for Protestantism came from Scripture, and that any laws that did not were heretical. He didn't mention the Arian paragraph or the Deutsche Christens, but it was clear what he was talking about. That text became known as the Barman Declaration. So Barman is this huge moment um, where they basically set up somewhat of a parallel church, the Confessing Church. And next to it was this Nazified church being led by the German Christians. And as time went on, these two movements uh, went in further and further different directions. The Barman Declaration was the founding document of the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church replaced the Pastors Emergency League in the church struggle, but it wasn't just a political organization. The Confessing Church declared the Nazified German Church as illegitimate and named itself as the inheritor of the German Protestant tradition. It's important to remember that even though the Confessing Church resisted Nazi church rule, they didn't, for the most part, resist the Nazis. Here's Victoria Barnett. The Confessing Church was not an anti-Nazi organization. You actually had members of the Confessing Church or pastors in the Confessing Church who were Nazi party members. Um, so you have, I mean, anti-Semitism was widespread in the Confessing Church. So it's not like it's a resistance organization. The exceptions to this were Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Back in London, Bonhoeffer became the Confessing Church's international ambassador. He rang up a huge telephone bill speaking with his German compatriots and made frequent trips home. During his time as a pastor in London, Bonhoeffer really honed his humanist, pacifist theology. His sermons from that time are some of his most beautiful and most radical. They're focused on themes of truth, justice, love, and peace. You can trace their theological lineage back to Abyssinian. For instance, he preaches about the suffering Christ and helping the oppressed. Suffering is holy. Therefore, we devote ourselves to the weak. Why is suffering holy? Because God has suffered in the world for man. God has suffered on the cross. It is therefore that all human suffering and weakness is sharing God's own suffering and weakness in the world. We are suffering. God is suffering much more. Our God is a suffering God. The suffering man is in the likeness of God. He preaches forcefully about the power of love. Love is the one thing that is beyond all differences, comes before all differences, and remains within all differences. Love is strong as death. Love makes everything else petty. Whatever seems great is really pitiful and crumbles to nothing, a picture of misery. 
What is the value of a life of pleasure, honor, fame, and brilliance compared to a life lived in love? What is furthermore the value of a pious and moral life, a disciplined life of sacrifice and self-denial if it is not a life lived in love? And at an ecumenical conference in Denmark, Bonhoeffer delivered a moving yet haunting speech about the necessity for peace. Peace must be dared. It is the great venture. It can never be made safe. Peace is the opposite of security. The hour is late. The world is choked with weapons and dreadful is the distrust which looks out of all men's eyes. The trumpets of war may blow tomorrow, for what are we waiting? Who knows if we shall see each other again another year? At the end of his year and a half in London, Bonhoeffer received two enticing offers for how to spend the next chapter of his life. The first came from a group of concerned Christians in the north of Germany. They wanted Bonhoeffer to come and run a seminary for young Christians who didn't support the Nazis. They would fund the whole thing, and so Bonhoeffer wouldn't have to worry about the reach of the state. The other offer came in the form of a short letter from India. The sender was none other than Mahatma Gandhi. Bonhoeffer had written to the pacifist leader of the Indian resistance, asking for advice and for a tour of his ashram. He didn't expect a response, but here was one, addressed to his good friend Dietrich, with an invitation to spend six months in India. Bonhoeffer seriously considered the offer, but he knew he couldn't run away to India. He was a German, and his country needed him. It was time for him to return home. He accepted the offer to lead the private seminary, and it would end up being a period of profound reflection and, surprisingly, joy. I have been entrusted with one of the most wonderful and indeed responsible tasks in the confessing church, namely, with training the next theological generation in a preacher's seminary. I do believe that at last I am on the right track for the first time in my life. I often feel quite happy about it. The official name of Bonhoeffer Seminary was the Emergency Teaching Seminary of the Confessing Church. It was one of five such seminaries set up by the Confessing Church to preach their non-Nazified Christianity. It's better known by history as simply Finkenwalde, the name of the village that hosted it. At Finkenwalde, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to build a church community from scratch, exactly as he wanted it to be. The guiding principle of the seminary was monastic life. This was unusual for a German Lutheran, to say the least. Monasticism was seen as something utterly Catholic. But in true ecumenical form, Bonhoeffer wanted to blend what he saw as the best practices of different denominations. Each day at Finkenwalde was carefully regimented. The two dozen or so seminarians woke up with the sun and spent their first moments in meditation. Then they'd join up and pray and read scripture together. After a light breakfast, they break out into small groups and study a single passage every week. 
Then they'd gather in the lecture hall to begin the daily lesson from Bonhoeffer, after which they'd come together in the chapel for music. Music was an essential part of the experience at Finkenwalde. Bonhoeffer would play the piano, and he expected his students to sing along. There was free time after music, followed by private study, dinner, and an evening prayer. Each day ended as it began, with silent meditation. The essential mission of Finkenwalde was to train these seminarians to one day become pastors. Bonhoeffer wanted them to think about one question above all. What does it mean to be a Christian? This question took on new significance in a time when Nazified Christianity seemed to have won out. And so Bonhoeffer's task at Finkenwalde is to train young seminarians who have no hope of an official position in the Protestant church. They're not going to be ordained by the official church. Um, He's trying to train them to be pastors in what, for all he knows, is the beginning of the Thousand-Year Reich. Um, I mean, Nazism has taken hold. A group of completely free, committed pastors is needed in order to preach the word of God in the present and future struggles of the church, a group prepared for immediate service and proclamation whenever new emergency situations might arise. They must be prepared to make themselves available wherever their services are needed under any circumstances. The goal is not monistic isolation, but rather the most intensive concentration for ministry to the world. And what Bonhoeffer does in Finkenwalde, I think, is train these young people in a monastic-like setting to learn how to have some backbone and to hold their ground. I don't think what he was doing at Finkenwalde was training people for resistance. Bonhoeffer's mission for the seminary was noble, but he was careful not to make it a political organization. For instance, when one of his seminarians came up with the idea to forge documents that Jews and others could carry to prove their Aryan lineage, Bonhoeffer dismissed it. He argued that it was a matter for the state, not the church. It's the kind of decision that he would come to deeply regret later in life. Bonhoeffer fashioned Finkenwalde in the image of his first dissertation, as Christ existing as church community. Each seminarian was expected to recognize and honor their ethical obligations to one another. He felt that this model was more important than ever. He puts a great emphasis on community, on becoming close to one another, you know, because he knows that, you know, they're going to count on each other. They can't trust, you know, Germany. Germany had become a place where people betray their neighbors to the Gestapo. These people don't know who they can trust. So he's trying to build a core church that maybe can continue to witness to the gospel in a, an environment in which the gospel has been highly politicized and turned into an, an ideological tool, if you will. It was at Finkenwalde that Bonhoeffer met a man who would become his dearest friend and eventual biographer, a man named Eberhard Betke. It was also at Finkenwalde where Bonhoeffer wrote what would become his two best-known books. The first was a reimagining of the Lutheran doctrine of justification that would be published in English as The Cost of Discipleship. So he wrote Discipleship while he was directing the seminary at at Finkenwalde. It was published in 1937. That's Lori Brandt-Hale. She's a theologian and a contributor to the book Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. 
It's famously known for its distinction between cheap grace and costly grace. Under the doctrine of justification, Christians don't have to do anything to receive God's grace. It's simply given to the faithful. Bonhoeffer certainly doesn't question that idea, but he does argue that to receive God's grace without showing an obedience to God is cheap. But I would argue that Bonhoeffer's work on grace kind of rectifies a longstanding misunderstanding of Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by asserting the connection between faith and obedience. And so he's rereading the biblical text. He's rereading the New Testament stories, calling people to discipleship of the Sermon on the Mount, calling people to love their enemies. These are all ideas that began to form while Bonhoeffer attended service at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. It was Adam Clayton Powell Sr. who first introduced the idea of cheap grace to Bonhoeffer. In The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer implores Christians to embrace the cost of grace and to live a life of obedience to God, especially in their relationship with others. But he says, you know, there has to be something a little bit more substantive uh, here. There has to, it has to cost you something. It has to, if you, if you want forgiveness, you have to repent. And so he embraces that transformative piece of the traditionally Catholic version. And, and this is his articulation of costly grace. I do read discipleship as an astute, politically informed call to live and suffer vicariously on behalf of others in, a, in sort of in commitment and obedience to Christ alone. The other book Bonhoeffer writes during this period is called Life Together. It's a collection of essays, sermons, and lectures that he came up with while leading the seminary. It's often thought of as an instruction manual for intentional Christian communities. The tone of Life Together is joyful, full of a communal spirit. And so was life at Finkenwalde, despite everything that was happening in Germany at that time. In 1936, Berlin hosted the Summer Olympics as a sort of coming out party among nations. The games were designed to hide how bad things had gotten in Germany. Shortly afterwards, Hitler began mobilizing the country for war. In one of the congregations in which I spoke, a sign on the bookstore read, After the end of the Olympics, we'll beat the confessing church to marmalade. Then we will chuck out all the Jews. Then the confessing church will end too. Beautifully poetic, isn't it? In the winter of 1936, on the night of his 30th birthday, Bonhoeffer gathered the seminarians and played music for them from the book of African-American spirituals that his friend Al Fisher had given him before he left New York. He told the seminarians about his time in Harlem and the theology he had learned there. He hoped that these songs and stories of suffering people who found strength in faith would inspire them for what was to come. The arrest of confessing church members has started months before that night. In December 1935, the Nazis had declared their intent to close all confessing church seminaries and arrest those involved. They made good on that plan over the next year. Bonhoeffer's relationship with Berlin University was forcibly ended the following summer. Shortly afterward, he received word from his ecumenical contacts that they had done all they could for the German church. The Nazis rounded up more members of the Confessing Church by the month. In July 1937, they came for the head of the Confessing Church, Martin Niemöller. 
himself a supporter of Nazi ideology. Niemöller would ultimately be sent to a concentration camp. The church struggle really changes at this point because up until, say, 36 or 37, it's led by Martin Niemöller. When his leadership is denied and he's silenced in these concentration camps, his voice is not heard, the church struggle kind of dwindles. This is a good time to remind you of why you may recognize Niemöller's name. He is best known for a poem attributed to him that is inscribed on the walls of the United States Holocaust Memorial. It's called First They Came. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then, they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. In September of 1937, the Nazis finally came for Finkenwalde. They shut down the seminary and arrested those involved. The members were later released, but the damage had been done. The light of the confessing church had already dimmed. Now, it went out. Hitler and the Nazis only grew bolder. They made plain their intention to conquer Europe and murder every Jew they could find. Not just Jews, gay people, people with disabilities, and anyone deemed unfit for the Third Reich. Bonhoeffer's twin sister Sabine and her Jewish husband fled the country, headed for England. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was truly lost after the Nazis shut down Finkenwalde. He couldn't go to his family. He had been banned from even entering Berlin. In short time, he would be banned entirely from preaching or publishing in Germany. He feared that he would soon be conscripted into the German army or end up in a camp himself. He made a final desperate plea to the leaders of the ecumenical movement, asking them to keep a place for the confessing church in their ranks. They told him that there was nothing they could do for the confessing church. But they could help him. With the help of his old professor, Reinhold Niebuhr, they could get him on a flight headed to New York City. Bonhoeffer agreed. He arrived back in the American metropolis on June 12, 1939, 10 years after his last journey there. Here's Joel Luber, the author of Bonhoeffer's America. Bonhoeffer came to America for the second time, 1939, because he, he's in some danger. The seminary... Finkenwalde had been shut down. Um, he's been banned from the city of Berlin. And he knows he's got to do something. New York had changed dramatically in those 10 years. The most obvious change was the addition of the towering Empire State Building to the skyline. But Bonhoeffer felt none of the awe that he had felt on his first trip. His most immediate, intense feeling was regret. 
very quickly, Bonhoeffer becomes quite despondent, I think it's fair to say. The full force of self-reproach about a wrong decision is almost suffocating. I am filled with despair. I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of the time with my people. As quickly as he had arrived, Bonhoeffer resolved to leave. He didn't reach out to any of his old classmates, but there's some evidence that he did return to the site of his theological transformation, Abyssinian Baptist Church. Here's Reggie Williams. So there's a student there, there's a man working there, actually, named Rudolf Schade, who is completing his Bachelor of Divinity degree. He's German, German-speaking. Schade talks about Bonhoeffer walking with him, grabbing him out of the seminary and walking along the street outside the seminary, speaking excitedly in German about the sermon he preached at that black church, which we believe is Abyssinian. The entire time he's there, he's racked with guilt about being away in safety. It's interesting that in that time when he is troubled so deeply that he would do that, that he would return back to that church, it was no doubt a comfort. Bonhoeffer boarded a ship bound for Germany on July 27th, 1939. He takes the last boat, the last boat back, last possible way uh, but if he misses that boat, you know, Bonhoeffer doesn't go back. He stays in the United States and survives. But he catches this boat. He thinks he might be arrested and killed right away. So it's a very brave move that he makes in going back there. In one of his last nights in New York, he wrote about his state of mind. Manhattan at night. The moon stands above the skyscrapers. It is very hot. The journey is over. I am glad that I was there and glad that I am on my way home again. When Bonhoeffer arrived back in Germany a little while later, it marked the beginning of a new chapter in his life, one that moved from theological dissidence to political resistance. I told you at the very start how this chapter of his life ends. But sometimes, when you know the end of something, it makes the journey there all the more important to understand. On the next and final episode of season one of From Sin to Saint, we will look at the last few years of Bonhoeffer's life and examine what his legacy means for us today. We'll look at his involvement in the conspiracy against Adolf Hitler. And he realized in the scenario of the Holocaust that pacifism, if he sat idly by and did nothing, it results in thousands of Jewish deaths annually. And put his final writings in conversation with his theological and political legacy. What we see after that in the letters and papers from prison is a series of reflections on what the, the future could possibly look like. In order to understand 
what makes Dietrich Bonhoeffer such an important figure for our past, our present, and our future. With Bonhoeffer, you know, what you see is what you get, pretty much. And he seemed to be able to sort of, you know, live out his commitments in a way that's really appealing. And the other thing I like, that I think is important about him and, and attractive is, like I said, you know, he really did have this desire to encounter the other in whatever form. If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out Answers, the latest podcast offering from Pathios. Who is the founder of Hinduism? What is excommunication? What are the five pillars of Islam? What is Buddhism? When was the Holy Answers is a show for people who are curious about the world's religions. In this series, Pathios seeks to provide concise answers to some of the most common questions people have about Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and so many more of the world's great religious traditions. You can find answers and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information.